Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, it's uh, it's been a little while since we've had the chance to connect and chat and share our endings, hasn't it? It certainly has longer than planned, but it's yeah, good to be yes. talking to you again, Mike. Likewise, likewise. Uh, for those listeners, we appreciate you uh, sticking around with us. We just had some various holidays and some some trips out of town and, you know, scheduling conflicts. Things just got a little bit, you know, away from us. But we are back. And as always, we bring you new content every week. So don't worry. We're not going anywhere. We're not changing anything. Uh, we're still going to be here every week. Um, but, you know, now it's good to, after a couple of weeks of mini episodes, it's good to be back into the swing of things with some, what I, I think are pretty fun uh, endings, some pretty fun after the endings. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it's it's going to be good to do a full episode again. Yeah, so apologies for the break, but uh, it's all back on track and we're good to go. Yep. All right, well, Phil, why don't you tell people what we're talking about in this week's episode? Okay, we're going to be going after the ending of Idiocracy and A Knight's Tale. So two different films. Uh, yeah, I think different films, yeah. Uh, and also we're going to be talking about our favorite performances of Michael Douglas. Yes, yes, very exciting. One of my favorite actors uh, and two movies that I love. So um, I'm excited to talk about both of these, actually. Yeah, yeah, the Michael Douglas one was good. There was, uh, I realized, though, there's, there's a few of his films which I've not actually seen, which I should have seen. Mm, interesting. Now, I don't know that I had that, that realization. I don't know if that's because I've... I've seen the films that you haven't seen, or I didn't re- recognize them as films that I kind of needed to see, so to speak. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though, I mean, I want to see all of his films eventually. I've seen I've seen a good amount of them, though. I, I do think I maybe I am a big Michael Douglas fan. But I, I will say it was definitely hard to narrow my list down to just five choices, though. This is one where I easily could have done a top ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there was, uh, he's had some good, been in some great movies. Yes, yes. He's had doubt. some really good roles. Quite a, a varied mix of roles as well, which is always good. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, Why don't we start off with our films then first? Uh, Let's talk about Idiocracy, shall we? Yes, let's get started. Shall I uh, give the rundown on that one? Yeah, I think just uh, maybe a little context here, you know, for people who are kind of going, Idiocracy, like, I think either you know the film or you don't. It is kind of a cult classic. Yeah, yeah. It was not in theaters for more than like a day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, it did gain some life on on video. Uh, It was from Mike Judge. Yeah, you might might have seen, uh, you probably... If you've not seen the film, you might well have seen like some. You might have seen, you've probably seen memes based on some scenes and things about it, but yeah. you might not have realized what they were from. But there's one with Terry Crews in like a big stars and stripe jacket, things like that. But yeah. uh, more people are probably aware of it than they realize, I reckon. Right, right, and it's from Mike Judge, who basically only makes movies that bomb at the box office and then become <laughs> cult hits afterwards. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. You know, he, yeah, he's obviously the guy from who did Office Space, and then Idiocracy, which which has become sort of eerily prescient, you know, in that I think you know there are some things in it that are meant to be so blatantly stupid, yeah. and then you look at the world today and you go, huh. There's a couple of these things that I fear are coming true. So yes, it is a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting film. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, but you mentioned Office Space, and uh, we went after the ending for that back in episode fifty-seven. If you want to, after you finish listening to this, you can always go back and have a, a listen to what we thought happened after that one. 
Right. And so this is uh, episode 107. So apparently every 50 episodes we're going to do a Monday. <laughs> it episode. looks like it, doesn't it? Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Idiocracy, it's from 2006. So, and here's what happens in the film. Uh, we follow uh, Joe Bowers, played by Luke Wilson, who's in the army, and he's selected for a suspended animation experiment, as he is basically average in all ways. Average intelligence, average looks, everything. Turns out that there's no suitable female candidate, so a woman called Rita, played by Maya Rudolph, who is actually a prostitute, is hired to take part because the guy in the army running it is doing some dodgy dealings with the with this uh, with the pimp, uh, and the experiment ends up being forgotten about, and Joe ends up waking up in the year twenty five oh five or two thousand five hundred and five, however you want to say it. But he's uh, his his spending animation pod falls into the apartment of a guy called Frito, played by Dak Shepard, and Joe finds out that. He finds out that as intelligent human beings fail to have children, uh, but the least intelligent humans decided to procreate. Society as a whole became progressively progressively dumber over the past few hundred years. Then through a series of misunderstandings, Joe ends up as Secretary of the Interior in the United States and solves the food shortage problem by using water to irrigate crops instead of sport drinks, which had been the norm at this time. And Joe ends up as President he ends up marrying Rita, has, and they end up conceiving the world's three smartest children. Meanwhile, Frito has become vice president, and he takes eight wives and fathers 32 of the world's stupidest children. <laughs> and that's Idiocracy. There you go. Yeah, I yeah. think, um, you know, I, I think a lot of this film can be explained by the opening scene, which I think is the opening scene, which is basically like an explanation of how the world became so dumb. And it just shows like this yeah. one sort of urban, you know, professional couple being like, we're just waiting for the right time. And then, you know, they keep coming back like, well, it's just not right. You know, Todd just got promoted and this and that. And then they keep cutting back and forth with sort of this, you know, hillbilly backwoods couple. And they're like, yeah, we just had Bubba number seven, you know. And so they kind of <laughs> use that. And, you know, the smart couple never procreates because they're too busy and the other couple just keeps having you know dumber kids and so it sort of you know expands out over the course of 500 years and it it does certainly i think have a, a little ring of truth i don't want to insult anybody i'm just saying you definitely do hear about some of these you know couples these these professional couples who yeah. are just like well the time's not right and then it, it never is so it does make you go hmm <laughs> you know yeah i can you see you don't how this bring, could happen some people don't want to bring children into the world because they feel it's all going to hell in a handcart but uh yeah, yeah, it's a discussion for another time. Yeah, it's all getting very serious <laughs> yeah. over about idiocracy. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's keep it light, yeah. shall the we? The film talk? is a work of fiction, I want to stress. <laughs> right, exactly. And it is a comedy. <laughs> right. And there are some very funny moments in it as well. There there are. I was going to say, so how, how do you feel about the movie, Phil? Do you like it? Yeah, I've only seen it. I've only seen it once all the way through, but I did enjoy it. Uh, just be, I, but I think most of the time I was just spent with my mouth open going, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're going, you're going mm, oh, crap. Yeah, this could happen. But uh, I've then I've seen it in bits and pieces here and there, but I, I do need to sit down and watch it all again. But I do like Mike Judge's films. Uh, it's got a great cast. Yeah, as I mentioned, yeah, I forgot to mention, Terry Crews is in it. He plays President Camacho. And there's, there's other familiar faces. Justin Long pops up as well. Uh, but it's yeah, it's a fun film. What about you? What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I th I think I feel pretty much the same way. I, I you know I enjoyed it. It's it's a surprising mix of clever and stupid. Yeah, yeah, good way of putting it. You know, uh, even though it's about stupidity, there so there's some really wry commentary in the film, and there is also a good amount of just lowest common denominator humor. Yeah, definitely. That is kind of dumb, and you, you either groan or roll your eyes. So it is an interesting movie for sure, and it's not subtle at all you know it's very in your face <laughs> no. uh, the way it looks yeah, the way totally, it's acted yeah. the way everything you know it's written everything um but i enjoy it overall i think i think it's kind of funny you know i, I like yeah it. yeah so if you like my judge films you're gonna like this one right exactly 
Uh, But that's what happens in the film. But Mike, what do you see happening after the ending? Okay, well, shortly after Joe becomes president, his first initiative, which is teaching people to read, becomes a massive success and automatically raises the average IQ score in America by seven points. As a result, Congress passes a law to allow him to be president for life. Joe uses the Secret Service to launch a hush-hush search for other intelligent people who may be out there in the world. After a few weeks of searching, they bring a diverse group of citizens in front of Joe. There's Veronica Featherstone, the world's last living librarian, who oversees a small self-built library of ancient books located in Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Todd Tubby Tubbington is a self-made <laughs> food scientist who studies anything and everything consumable. Samantha Smith is a former stripper who designed an accounting method for keeping track of her cash tips that has been adopted by most of the strippers in the world. And Simon Shepard is a man who has memorized the dialogue of every science fiction film ever made, and as a result, has a surprisingly strong grasp of physics. (laughs) Joe sits them all down and says, okay, (laughs) folks, I hope you're ready for a challenge. I'm tasking you with re-educating the United States. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. I like it. I like the descriptions as well. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, there might be some similarities, but nothing may, but just, I think just in basics, but I think okay. that's understandable with the film sure. question. Yeah. Right. Sounds good. All right. Well, well let's like hear it. what you got. Okay. Joe realizes that he has his work cut out for him, but he does the best he can. He realizes that in this new society, TV is the best way to, to reach the masses. So he goes through what they've got on the files, what in the system, and he schedules reruns of Mr. Rogers, Neighborhood, Bob Ross's <laughs> The Joy Painting, Reading Rainbow, and other similar shows. To give people a better sense of decency and also give them a basic education. I like it. He also includes a number of uh, kids' science shows that he finds, as he realizes that's the type of thing the general population will understand. He speaks to the heads of the various corporations, and due to the fact that he's a lot cleverer than all of them, he gets them to agree on various enterprises and schemes that will educate the masses and help clean up the environment. And that's my day after. Very nice. I like it. Thank you very much. But what's going on then with uh, your immediate aftermath? Well, it's an immense undertaking trying to re-educate a whole country. It's done in stages. The first step is to have all of the population take new IQ tests. The highest performers are then selected and broken up into groups by aptitude. Each of the four IQ leaders, Veronica, Samantha, Tubby, and Simon, train a small group of people to roll out the training in large-scale form, and the education process begins to take effect slowly but surely. Meanwhile, Joe takes control of the country's economy. With Brondo, that's the sports drink they were using to uh, irrigate the crops with before Joe came along, Uh, with Brondo going bankrupt, the fiscal situation of the U.S. is on shaky ground. Joe decides to create a new pornography company that's secretly (laughs) bankrolled by the government. The videos have educational content embedded in them in the form of subliminal messages. The plan is an instant success. People become hooked on the porn and the positive feelings it engenders in them as they slowly become incrementally smarter and the resulting revenues reinvigorate the economy. With Operation Hot for Teacher a success, Joe sets his sights on creating more programs to improve the country. Uh, oh, that's my immediate aftermath. Mike, that's brilliant. I mean, oh, I think thank that, you. that should become a real thing. <laughs> it, I did think that. I was like, hmm, <laughs> there could be a business idea here. Better teaching through porn. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> hey, kids, guess what we're doing in school today? No, no, that's the wrong right, thing. Right, okay. exactly. <laughs> oh, very good, though. I like it. Okay, so I'm glad you liked it. Uh, let's hear your immediate aftermath then. Okay, slowly but surely, President Joe's ideas did filter through. It would take years, but there was a slight shift in society with people thinking of others for a change and getting a little bit smarter. There'd also been a new religion springing up called Happy Little Trees based on the teachings of Bob Ross, and that brought a lot of happiness to many people. Joe also introduced mandatory IQ testing, 
and those with higher IQs were offered various jobs in schools, governments and other areas that required at least some thought. More jobs were also created in the entertainment sector as the old libraries were reopened and the various science, history, philosophy and other factual books were adapted into TV shows to help educate the masses. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Very nice. I like it. Using using uh, pop culture media to educate the masses. That's the way to do it. I think so. I That's agree. what I like. I only have an attention span of, uh, <laughs> uh, what was I saying? <laughs> oh, no. Go on, Karen. What's going on with uh, your long term, then, Mike? All right. Well, 30 years later, America is a changed place. Joe and Rita had made sure that their children had grown up with the most education available. And now that Joe was getting ready to retire as president, his children were getting ready to take over for him as the first group of sitting co-presidents. America's intellectual crisis has ended. While there are still stupid people out there, the average American citizen is once again, at the very least, average, with pockets of smart people everywhere. Joe's initiatives like the Smartphone Smart Person Campaign, Project Don't Drink Poison, and <laughs> Operation Look Both Ways Before Crossing the Street really made huge strides in bringing America back from the brink of disaster. Yes, there were a few missteps along the way. For example, the attempt at relaunching the space program was an utter disaster. <laughs> Luckily, they had managed to extinguish the atmosphere when it caught on fire. Extinguish uh, it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, and the secret time machine project uh, seemed like a success at first uh, until they realized that the only thing that they'd accomplished was opening a window into the past, but only five seconds into the past, which was pretty much useless. Still... <laughs> cool. As the sun set on Joe's time as president, he was able to look out across the horizon and feel proud that he had almost single-handedly saved the country. And that's the end. Ah, uh, lovely. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Very good. Very funny. Thank you. I try. I try to keep yes. it the spirit of the film. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. All right, but let's hear about how you're educating the masses with TV. I want to I hear how this all wraps up. Okay. Uh, the general population had become smarter and kinder due to the ideas of President Joe. He'd been voted president for life simply because he'd actually done good things that had benefited mankind and stuck to what it, his word. His children had grown up to be leaders in the fields of medicine, engineering and science. The problem was everything still had to be dumbed down to the simplest level, but it all seemed to work out. If it was presented in a bright, flashy and loud commercial or short TV program, it seemed that any idea could be sold to the masses and it would be met with great delight. Luckily, President Joe was a good man, so he did not misuse that in any way. And America had become better than it had been in a long while. And that's my long term. Very good. I like it. Thank you very much. Nicely done. Yeah, all in all, both, both stories, America ended up being good again. There you go. And Joe was president for life, interestingly, yeah. in both yes, of yeah. So Great. Maybe that's what we need. We just need an average man in the right place at the right time. Maybe that is what we need. All right, there you go. That's Idiocracy. Phil, do you have any triviocracy for us today? Very good. I like that. It's good. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. Uh, Terry Crews had to audition five times to get the role of President Camacho. Interesting. Yes. Uh, production designer Darren Guilford uh, decided to have everybody in the cast wearing something called Crocs. At the time <laughs> of filming, nobody else knew what they were. Wow. <laughs> yes, but when the time the film came out and afterwards, they were everywhere and probably some of the crew were going, what the hell? You know, it's, it's all coming true. <laughs> right. That's funny. And Carlton Cigarettes and Walmart didn't allow for their logos to be mocked, but everybody else who was approached said, yeah, go for it. What the hell? As long as you're doing it to everybody, we don't care. Right, right. <laughs> and that's Idiocracy. Very cool. All right, then. Let's move on to our next film, which is A Knight's Tale. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. A Knight's Tale. Do you want to give us a rundown on what happens in that one, Mike? Absolutely. A Knight's Tale from 2001, directed by Brian Helgeland, starring Heath Ledger, the late, great Heath Ledger, uh, Rufus Sewell, Shannon Sossaman, Paul Bettany, Mark Addy, and Alan Tudyk. 
So, in 14th century Europe, young squire William Thatcher, played by Heath Ledger, realizes that his knight has died right before winning a jousting tournament. With the help of his fellow squires, Roland and Watt, played by Mark Addy and Alan Tudyk, William dons his knight's armor and wins the tournament in his stead. William decides to continue jousting, impersonating a noble as only nobles are allowed to compete. As they train, they meet Geoffrey Chaucer. Yes, that Geoffrey Chaucer, the writer, uh, played by Paul Bettany, who's fantastic in this role, yes, uh, yes. who serves as William's hype man, basically. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein! During one joust, William's armor becomes damaged, so he convinces a young blacksmith named Kate to repair it, which is very accurate. I think there were a lot of women blacksmiths in the Middle Ages, which is when, you know, uh, job equality was definitely a thing. Uh, she eventually makes him a new armor. Uh, meanwhile, William falls in love with Jocelyn, a noblewoman who's also being courted by evil Count Adamar, played by Rufus Sewell. And in another duel, William learns that his opponent is Edward, the Black Prince, future King of England. William duels him anyway, earning the prince's respect. At the World Championship, Adamar reveals William's true identity and William is imprisoned. Prince Edward becomes aware of it and declares that William is actual nobility and declares him Sir William, allowing him to be freed and to compete against Adamar. In a tough match against a cheating Adamar, William emerges victorious and defeats him. And the film ends with William and his friends celebrating and Jocelyn and William embracing. And that is A Knight's Tale. That's excellent. An excellent rundown of what happens in the film. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Phil, how do you feel about, uh, about A Knight's Tale? I've not seen it in a long time, but I did when it first came out. I did I did watch it quite a bit. I do like it. I love the fact they use modern day music uh, within the film, right? Uh, just to give because I think it was they didn't want to use the music of the time because they wanted to show how you know it's you know the music of the time would make everybody emotional, but to use modern day music would get us in the same mindset. And I yeah. think it worked quite well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's great performances, great cast. Some of them have gone on to huge things, and they all get them really well. I mean. We, we met Rufus Sewell last year at New York Comic Con as well, so it was good seeing him after seeing him in that. And yep. he was a lovely, charming bloke. Nothing like the bad guy he plays in this. Right, right. Uh, but all in all, great cast, good film, lots of fun. Some some quite violent moments as well with the uh, the jousting and sword fights and stuff. But uh, yeah, I really like it. What about you? Yes, uh, violent though in a way, not um, not violent in like a dark way. It's more yeah, like yeah. an action violence. Yeah, it's action, more of just yeah, these yeah. exploding, you know, uh, jousting lances and and people get knocked off the horses and stuff like that but not violent in a way that's like makes you cringe or anything yeah 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 um i I love this movie i'll be honest with you it's one of my wife and i's favorites uh we saw it in theaters when it came out we've watched it many many times on video since then i absolutely adore this film i think um i was always disappointed that this movie didn't become a bigger hit than it was it seemed primed to break out at the box office that summer and it just somehow didn't you know it seemed like everyone really liked it and it just never seemed to 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 break out and become the big money maker that year um i yeah. think there was a lot of competition but i was always disappointed that it wasn't a bigger hit uh but i i do love this film and if you haven't seen it i really encourage you to watch it it's so much fun it's got i mean paul bettany has gone on to a great career but he'll always be jeffrey chaucer the way he he you know vamps for you know sir william yeah yeah in the film uh, there's so much humor and, and great action the music is fantastic uh, i just i love this movie yeah big excellent fan. excellent so all right well phil do you want to kick us off then and give us your day after yes i will okay then uh, so my day after chaucer gets busy writing the events that he had with william roland and what but he cannot think of a title of it uh, after the celebrations end william asks for jocelyn's hand in marriage and she accepts roland reminds william 
that he should ask Jocelyn's father for permission to marry his daughter, but Jocelyn says everything will be okay. A herald of Prince Edward arrives with word that William has been awarded a small parcel of land and a manor befitting a knight of the realm. So William, who'd been a bit panicking over the whole money situation, the fact he wanted to marry Jocelyn, lets out a sigh of relief. Over the moon at this turn of events, William seeks out Kate, the blacksmith. He pledges money for her to open her own smithy, and Jocelyn also pledges money for, from her own fortune. Meanwhile, Roland and Watts get drunk. That's my day after. <laughs> that's very fitting for them, actually. Yes, yeah, I thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah I like it. Thank you. And that's what happened to Minor. What's going on with your day after? All right, well, after his win at the World Championship, William and Jocelyn return to England with Chaucer, Watt, Roland, and Kate in tow. Shortly after they arrive, William finds himself summoned to a royal dinner with Sir Edward. William and Jocelyn arrive to a sumptuous dinner party, and they enjoy an evening of lavish meals, fine wines, and dancing with royals. After dinner, Prince Edward invites William for a glass of brandy in his parlor. He tells William that he's been following his career carefully after they jousted, and that he'd been extremely impressed with him. He offers to allow William and Jocelyn to get married in the castle if they decide to get married. William is grateful and overjoyed, but tempers his enthusiasm when he sees a dark look in the prince's eyes. I'm afraid I also have some bad news, Edward says. My sources tell me that Count Adamar has disappeared, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he did so right as you returned to England. I'm afraid dark forces may be at work here. You'd best keep a careful eye, young William. As William and Jocelyn depart for the night, William can't help but feel that the night air has gotten a little bit colder. Oh, foreboding. <laughs> yes, yes, a little foreshadowing there. Mm. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. All right, let's hear your immediate aftermath then. Okay. William and Jocelyn are married in a beautiful ceremony the following summer. William has proven himself to be an exemplary knight, while Kate's armour and weapons have been a huge success and are revolutionising the way battles take place. Her techniques and ideas are also being utilised in farming, forestry and other areas. Chaucer has managed to stay out of trouble with gamblers, thanks in part to Roland and Watt's company, and his writing of The Knight's Tale has proven very popular and led to a turn in his fortune. It also inspires him to keep writing. Meanwhile, Adamar has been training and through a third party has bought some of Kate's armour for himself. One day, while William is out riding, Adamir accosts him and challenges him to a duel to the death. William accepts. Mm. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. All right. Interesting. Mm. Well, there may be some similarities in, in our endings, but again, kind of just some, some basic, you know, broad similarities, you know. Yeah, but uh, if any new listeners out there, neither Mike or myself know what the other one's done at the time. So sometimes this does happen. Yep. Yep. But any yeah, anything is purely coincidental. Right, right. But like I said, it's, it's broad strokes, broad yeah, strokes. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Okay, Mike, uh, tell us your immediate aftermath. All right, well, six months later, it's the eve of William and Jocelyn's wedding. Geoffrey Chaucer has a lot of fun announcing the arrival of the guests. Watt and Roland are all dressed up as groomsmen, and Kate is there as Jocelyn's maid of honor. Prince Edward is there to give Jocelyn away, as her own father had sadly died many years before. William has truly become nobility, and all the people in the kingdom agree that his presence is a welcome one. Shortly before Jocelyn is set to walk down the aisle, however, one of the prince's squires approaches him and whispers in his ear. Prince Edward looks crestfallen. Then he turns to Jocelyn and says, I don't know how to tell you this, but William has gone missing. Just then, far away, William finds himself coming too. The pain in his head and his arms lets him know he's alive, but he's beginning to wish he wasn't. As he gains his bearing, he realizes that he's in a cabin of some sort. His arms are chained to the wall, and judging by the soreness, he surmises he's been that way for at least a few hours. Then a figure slowly comes into focus. It's Count Adamar, and he's brandishing a razor-sharp sword. Boo! <laughs> Boo to Count Adamar, guy. not to your story. But right, to... thank you. I, I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, very good. I like it. 
Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear how yours wraps up then about this with this duel to the death. So give us your long term. Okay. William meets Adamar at dawn the following day. He had not told his friends or Jocelyn. He had simply kissed her and said, I love you. Now Adamar and William sat on their horses and readied their lances. They charged and time seemed to slow. Then their lances connected and both men were knocked off their horses. William could taste blood in his mouth as his helmet was thrown off. He looked up at Adamar, was running towards him, their sword drawn. William got to his feet and drew his own sword. The true battle had begun. As they fought, William kept trying to make Adamar see sense, but he realised it was no good. Adamar was crazed and seeking vengeance. An hour later, William returned home. He was bloodied, battered and saddened at what had transpired. He told Jocelyn of the events of the morning. She was furious at him for not telling her, but she understood in the end. A month later, Chaucer came visiting and was shocked when he saw William. What the hell happened to you, he asked. Let me tell you how I got these scars, said William. <laughs> and that's my, uh, that's my ending. <laughs> uh, nicely done. I like, I, like, I like a lot of the ending, but I love how you tied that into one of Heath Ledger's most famous roles, of course. <laughs> yes, I could, uh, couldn't help myself when I realized that I figured that one out. <laughs> so thank you yeah yeah all right well i'm gonna say there may be a movie reference in my uh long term but it does not actually tie into a heath ledger role it's just something based on the name of a character that i found amusing okay cool well then hit me hit us with it come on what happens with your long term okay it's over adamar i have the high ground william shouts <laughs> as he stands above adamar <laughs> sorry see what i mean i, could, I just couldn't resist that's awesome yeah um William had thought Adamar was going to murder him while he was chained up, but Adamar had wanted to defeat him in one-to-one combat. So he'd unchained William and thrown a sword at his feet. The duel had been long and bloody, but now William had the upper hand. As Adamar prepares to lunge at William, Prince Edward and his royal guard ride up on horses. Enough, Prince Edward bellows. Place this man under arrest, he tells his guard. But before they can dismount, Adamar changes tactics, rushing Prince Edward with his sword instead. The guards are caught by surprise, but William springs into action, throwing his sword at Adamar and impaling him in the chest. As the life fades from Adamar's eyes, Edward says to William, It seems I am once again in your debt, my friend. William nods, then collapses, the blood lost from his wounds finally overcoming him. Two weeks later, Jocelyn is once again preparing to walk down the aisle. As she turns the corner and sees the better part of the kingdom watching, she spies William waiting for her at the altar. She smiles, then begins to walk down the aisle as the wedding march plays. She can't help but break out into laughter as she hears Geoffrey Chaucer break out into, Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the wedding of the century? <laughs> and that's the end. Excellent. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so like good. I said, a couple of broad stroke similarities, you know, obviously. But I think the idea that William and, and Adam are going to duel again was kind of, if you're going to do a sequel to this movie, yeah. you got to have them sort of match up because he's such a good bad guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was inevitable, but yeah, but uh, still suitably different, though. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. And enjoyable. I did like yours. Likewise. Yeah. All right, Phil, do you have a night's trivia for us? I do. So you mentioned the sound of when the the jousting, you have the lances hitting. The sound you hear whenever a lance shatters, they use the sound of a howitzer, you know, an artillery gun being fired. They slowed it down, and that's why it's so intense. But also, to make sure it wasn't too dangerous, they they hollowed out the lances and and put... uh, you know, scoured it as well, so it would break at a certain point, and also filled it full of sawdust and also ling- dry linguine and spaghetti, which looks like a splintering wood on film. So that's what they use for that. Very cool. Uh, there was also, in, apparently, there was a year in the life of Chaucer, which was not accounted for when historians have looked through, and this film was set during that year. And Heath Ledger knocked out 
one of directors Brian Helgeland's front teeth with a broomstick while they were demonstrating a jousting move. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I and, didn't uh, know that. And Paul Bettany's nude scene in the film was shot on his first day in front of a crowd of extras. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, if you've uh, started a new job and you've had a bad first day. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, think of that. <laughs> exactly. It could have been a lot worse. <laughs> that's but that's awesome. uh, A Knight's Tale. Very good. All right. Well, there you go. So those are our endings for Idiocracy and A Knight's Tale. Uh, And now it's time for us to move on to our 100 stars of Hollywood in 100 episodes, wherein we take an actor or actress from uh, the the history of Hollywood and we share our top five favorite performances uh, from said performer. And this week, as we mentioned earlier, we are discussing Michael Douglas who is one of my favorite actors, as I've said, and has just been in a lot of really great movies that I love. So this is a hard list for me to put together. Yeah, it's a very tough one. As, as, as Mike said, this is our favorite performances, not necessarily the favorite films of the, the actor, right. but it's performances. But yeah, I'd say Michael Douglas, a great actor. He's been in so many things. Also an amazing producer. He's produced yes. classic films like uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, things like that. But he's got a huge film career behind yeah. him, and he's still going strong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's jump into it then, shall we? Yeah, that sounds good. All right, well, Phil, why don't you kick us off then and give us your number five? Yeah, well, I'm going to start with one which is from uh, the past few years. Well, there's a couple of films. It's Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp where Michael Douglas plays Hank Pym. Mm -hmm. And I just, uh, you know, he's an old, he was a superhero. We get to see him briefly, you know, de-aged, working for S.H.I.E.L.D., but his technology, he wants to keep it safe. But I just like the fact he's playing, I just like the performance in this. It was a grouchy, a grouchy old guy who's a you know a genius not quite a mad scientist but he's got he's got his strict set of morals which he's sticking to he's got a family his, his wife's missing he's estranged from his daughter and he's just you can just see he's got there's a lot of things going on i mean some people you know look down on marvel films for the characters but there's there's a lot going on with the character hank Pym. but it's all yeah. done quite subtly and the way michael douglas acts it out and he starts off just thinking he's a crotchety old dude and as you learn more about him, you go, well, I can see why. And then we have Ammon and the Wasp, and it just carries on. He's chilled out a bit, but he's felt betrayed by Paul Wood's character and so on. But I just, I really like it. It's, it looked like uh, Michael Douglas was having a lot of fun. And it's one of the, probably one of the few films where he could show his grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, because he has been in some, well, not totally adult stuff, but lots of things with like sexual or violent content in his in his. Or just more adult themes. Yeah, you know, more, I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. he's made a lot of movies geared for grown ups. He hasn't made a yeah, lot of yeah. you know kid friendly films. Yeah, and he's played a lot of darker characters as well. But uh, I right. do like uh, his role as Hank Pym. That's yeah. my number five. Excellent choice. I will say they didn't make my list not because I don't love him in the role. I just I like I said this is a hard list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done to put together. He's got a hell of a career. So yeah. Very good. All right. Well, my number five is from 1995, where he plays the character Andrew Shepard, better known as the American President. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Which is a really, really great and highly underrated romantic comedy about a an American president who's a widower. And um, he falls in love with Annette Benning, who, you know, is a non-political person. And he basically kind of has to keep this relationship a secret because nobody knows what to do with the president who's dating basically the first time in history. Yeah, yeah. It's a really charming film. But here's here's what I like about the, the, this performance. You know, it, this to me was sort of is an epitome of Michael Douglas' performance in that one of the characteristics he brings to so many of his roles is just this ridiculous charisma. Like, he's just such a charismatic actor. Yeah, um, yeah, very true. And I feel like this movie really... You know, I I could have just listed five movies where he was really charming, you know, but that doesn't get at the 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 point of yeah, his lists. Yeah. Um, so this one to me was sort of the the boiled down the 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 epitome of his charmingness at its best. I think he's just so likable and so charming and so dad.
dashing and, and fun in this film. To me, it sort of represents that that side of him the best. So uh, it's a movie I do really love, but I do think it's a great performance in just him turning the charm up to 11. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's an excellent choice. Didn't make my, my list, but uh, it's when I was doing the list, I was thinking that the, there's like certain groups of characters. He does like the charming one. Yeah. There's the, the, uh, the slightly... Uh, you know somebody who's got a bit of a dark side to him and things yep. like that. Yep. But, uh, they're all they are all different characters, but it's all he does have a few a few noticeable trends with his characters. But yeah, good right. pick. Thank you. Okay, my number four is one from a film from two thousand from the year two thousand. It's Wonder Boys. He's basically uh, in this one. He's playing Professor Grady Tripp, who's a novelist. He's teaching creative writing at a university in Pittsburgh. And he's having an affair with someone, uh, and he's having troubles with some of his students, and it's just it's there's lots of things going on, and he's trying to keep it all together. It's uh, more of a it's a comedy drama, so it's a bit more of a comedy kind of character, and it's just lots of things are going out of his control, and it's because often the characters he plays are like totally in control and know what's going on, and but this one, uh, he's just he's a little bit, he's not as. He's not as buttoned up as lots of his other characters as well. Uh, lots of funny moments, some great character moments, and a great piece of acting by uh, Michael Douglas. And uh, yeah, it's a good, good film. That's my number four. Good pick. It is actually also my number four. Oh wow! Oh, now, wow. <laughs> this is one of those cases where I, I I pick the performance over the film. I don't I don't dislike Wonder Boys. In fact, I think it's it's Curtis Hansen who directed um, L.A. Confidential, which is one of my yeah, favorite yeah, yeah, movies yeah. ever. Um, I don't dislike it, but I don't love it. it it's an okay film as far yeah, as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's a fun film, but uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but the reason I picked it is I, I do think he's he's terrific in the role, but also it's kind of the anti-American president. You know, that movie is all Michael Douglas being charm and and debonair and, and handsome, and you know, the, the Wonder Boys is the complete opposite. He's he's schlubby. He's got you know messy hair and like a, you know the stubbly beard. He he smokes pot. He's kind of a, you know you know he's got a, a devil may care attitude you know in a lot of it it's a much different yeah, yeah. michael douglas than we're used to seeing you know especially i think after when he made this movie i think he was coming off a string of roles where he was like you said much more in control and this was definitely a, a, a change of pace for him um so while i don't love the movie i do think it's a really really strong performance from him and it is definitely him playing against type which i always like to see yes totally yeah totally agree uh so both of us had number uh wonder boys is number four Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, my number three is a film from 1984, and it's the comedy adventure film *Romancing the Stone*, which was directed by Robert Zemeckis. And in this one, Michael Douglas plays Jack Colton, who at first is a bit like an Indiana Jones kind of character, but he's not quite—he's not quite as cool. He starts off pretty cool, uh, but then you sort of—he's got a bit more—he's—he's he's lived a bit more of a life, I think, than Indiana Jones. He's not just a buttoned-up professor who gets out and just goes on adventures he's just uh yeah he's a proper he, at first when you first see him you're not kind of sure whether he's a bad guy or the good guy he's got a bit more menace to him which he can turn on and off he's uh he's got the charisma you mentioned but he's also got a bit of danger to him which is good and uh also it shows off his uh his comedy timing because it's a very funny film as well as well the action adventure but uh that's my number three. Very good pick. All right, well, my number three comes from 1993, uh, and it is the movie Falling Down, uh, in which he plays a character referred to as Defense, or Defense, mm-hmm. uh, but he doesn't really ever have a name in the film. And, of course, this is famously the movie about, you know, he, he plays like this kind of buttoned-up office worker, gets stuck in traffic, and basically kind of just flips out, gets out of his car, starts walking across the city of Los Angeles, and um, along the yeah. way, he t- sort of takes down some gang members and stuff, and, and and you know, just ends up sort of becoming like a hero to the people, basically, because he's not putting up with anything from anybody, and, and it's not quite a vigilante, but kind of 
as people come across him that maybe, you know, are, are out to get him or whatever, he doesn't put up with any nonsense, we'll say. And uh, this is another, I, I like this movie. I don't, I don't love it, but I like it. But yeah, it's yeah. it's a darker role for him. And again, it was a definite change of pace for him. Definitely against type. You know, he's very buttoned up, very uh, tightly controlled in his emotions, although he does have some explosive moments. Um, but it's, it's you know, it doesn't have that that charm and that humor and, you know, the the the, the charisma. It's much more uh, tightly locked down performance, but it's a really strong, really intense performance. Um, so I think he's terrific in this role. And so even though, like I said, it's not a movie, it's not one of my favorite films of his. Uh, it is definitely one of his best performances, I think. Yes, an excellent choice. And it's my number two. Aha, uh-huh. I had a feeling yeah. it would be on your list. Yeah, because uh, like you say, everything you say, I totally agree with. Uh, and as you, as it goes on, you sort of go, well, I can see why he's like this. So, yeah, you know, if I was in McDonald's or whatever burger place, right? you know, I wish I could do that. But then as it goes on as well, you find out the character's a little bit darker than you expected and you can see why things have happened. But as you say, it's a different kind of role, different kind of haircut form as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's one of it's one of director Joel Schumacher's good films as well. He seems to have this, this thing where he does really good films and then really bad films. Yes. But uh, yeah, it's that one. It's a uh, it's a good it's a great role. Uh, lots I like the fact as well. He gets he's just just walking and just coming across people. And yeah, that's my number two. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, um, we talked about how many choices there were, but we're gonna have a lot of similarities on our list. It turns out because yeah, we flip flopped yeah. our number three and our number two. My number two is the aforementioned Romancing the Stone. <laughs> I I absolutely love this movie. I really do. Uh, so I, I know there's some bias in there, maybe because I love the movie so much. But I do maintain it's one of his best performances as well. Yeah, I think this is the first movie I ever saw him in. So I didn't really know who he was at that point because I was fairly young when it came out. But from the time I saw that movie, he's been one of my favorite actors. Like by the time that movie was over, I was like, this guy's the greatest actor ever. <laughs> now, admittedly, like I said, I was young, but it's like you said, you know, he, he, what I like about this role so much is how many different, you know, attitudes he takes on. You know, in the beginning, he's yeah, kind of this yeah. sort of like half crazy, been living in the jungle man, you know, like isn't afraid to sort of play fast and loose with his life and with Catherine Wilder's life and, and a little bit crazy, a little reckless, you know. Uh, then as things go on, then we get to see that, you know, they get to Cartagena and uh, he, he gets all cleaned up and he gets in a nice clothes and he's all suave and they're dancing and it's very romantic and very sexy and then like towards the end of the film he's got to show kind of his tender side he's got to sort of decide between this jewel and, the, and this woman but he, then he also kind of is a little cutthroat and I just think the character really has a lot of you know interesting parts to him um, so it's it's a funny role it's an exciting role it's got the action adventure component um, but he's a real character and uh, I just I absolutely love the movie and I love the role so that's my number two an excellent choice and I have a feeling yeah yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. That we might have the same number one. Yes. My, it's one we went after the ending of way back in episode 33. Hmm. It's my number one. Actually, then we don't have the same number one. Oh, okay. But that's okay. Go ahead. I want to hear it. It's from 1997 and it's David Finch's The Game. Yes. I had a feeling that would be on your list. I didn't know if it would be your number one or not. So I actually have a different choice. We'll get to that, though. Go ahead and talk about The Game. Oh, excellent. Okay, that's good then. Yeah, because this one, we've mentioned a lot of his roles. He plays these guys who are super confident, a bit buttoned up and everything. And in this one, he plays a guy called Nicholas Van Orton, who's an, a wealthy businessman, investment guy. doing. He's, doing, he's one of those jobs they have in films where you're never quite sure what exactly they do, but they always end up making a load of money. But uh He's uh, he's this, he's in control of everything. Everything's in, a, in its place, and he's smart, and he knows what's going on. But then his brother, his wild brother, played by Sean Penn, he says, "I've got you this birthday present, and it's a voucher for a game by a company called Consumer Recreation Services." And it basically changes Nicholas's life 
Yeah, and it's just it's it's this buttoned up man being thrust into this crazy scenario, and he doesn't know what's real, who he can trust, what's going on, and it's just good seeing uh, Michael Douglas is this this character he's playing just unravel bit by bit and try and grasp on with what's going on and basically just let go of everything he thought he knew was real, and it's it's just seeing this 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 character have these these terrible situations, but seeing him become a better person for it, I suppose, is the way to do it. Or yeah. find a or find a better way of living through it all. And I just like the way the character this this character that Michael Douglas plays it, it's just buttoned up, uh, is ripped apart and then builds himself back up again. And I think it's great it's a great uh, performance in a great film, which is always worth checking out. And as I say, we we went after the ending back in episode thirty three. So that's uh I have cannot remember what the hell I said in it. But <laughs> I'm sure they were both very good after the endings. Right. Uh, I love that movie, and I think it's a great performance, but I did not include it on my list. Um, and that was a tough one for me to leave out, actually. The reason I didn't include it is only because sometimes I get caught up in whether I'm including it because I love the performance or just because yeah, yeah, I love the yeah. movie so much. Oh, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. So I, I like to err on the side of caution. And uh, so in this case, because I had enough str- other strong performances that were you know pretty varied, uh, I decided to leave it off. I also had a feeling that maybe you'd talk about it. So kind of kill two birds with one stone. That's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Do that. But so go on what is your number one? Uh, my number one, then, I'm a little surprised didn't even make an appearance on your list, I have to say. I'm probably going to kick myself when you say it. Maybe. We'll see. It is from 1987, and it is the immortal role of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. Oh, uh, yeah. I've, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, I can see why, but it's uh, the character Gordon Gecko just really irked me. I didn't like the character. <laughs> okay, That's all right, fair enough. His performance was great, but I just the character just uh, okay. I can't I can't get away from that. Even no. though yeah, he does an amazing job in it though. Sure. Well, I, I can totally understand that, but I, I I absolutely absolutely love this role and this movie. Um, I'm a huge fan of this film, and I think that it's uh it's again sort of a little bit against type for him, only in that he plays basically a, a, a slimy bad guy, which again usually at this point he was playing more likable characters, but. You know, Gordon Gecko. I think I, I just I love that, you know, he's got that iconic line about greed is, you know, is good. That's uh, I, any character like that that has kind of a, a pop culture lexicon moment is always a favorite yeah, of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's just he's so good in this film because he's so charismatic and he's so transparent. But you're still surprised when it turns <laughs> out that he's everything that you know he is from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's so masterful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, he's the bad guy. You know, he's going to do terrible things. And then yet when he does it, you still feel let down and betrayed and surprised because <laughs> you're like, dang it. I thought he was going to not do it. You know what I mean? Um, and and I love that. I love that about the character. I just think he's so slimy and charismatic and just it's I think it's a brilliant performance. Um, and I think he really embodies the character. Like when you watch that film, you don't just see Michael Douglas in a great role. You see Gordon Gecko. You, you see yeah, this character yeah. um, who just tears people down and destroys lives and doesn't give it a second thought. And he is all about the 80s capitalism. And it's it's a great film and a great role. So that's my number one, Wall Street. That's an excellent choice. And yeah, as you said, he embodied his, his performance and that character embodied like that particular period of time and a whole uh, subsection of society. Yes, yes. And it's it's not there's not many film roles or characters or performances which can you can actually say do that. But that's that's one of them. Right, exactly. Because you mentioned Gordon Gecko, people know exactly when you're talking about what went <laughs> right, on, right. what those people were yeah. like. Yeah. Yep, exactly. An excellent choice. All right, there you go. So, so some similarities in our lists, but also some, some, you know, a couple solid different picks as well, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But there's, uh, there's many more which could have been on the list. As you said, it could have easily been a top ten. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I could, yeah. I didn't even talk about Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct or so many yeah. other great movies yeah. he's done. So yeah, Black Rain. 
Otherwise, thanks. Yeah, yeah. But uh, a, good, a good list, a good list. Yeah, indeed. All right, there you go. That is our top five Michael Douglas performances, and that is going to start to wrap up our episode. Uh, but before we go, Phil, why don't you tell people what we're going to be talking about next week? Yes, I'm glad you asked, Mike. Yeah, so next time we're going to be going after the ending of 1997's The Relic, and also we're going to be doing Back to the Future 3, so that's a pretty big film there. Yeah, kind of a ra- it's kind of a Back to the Future trilogy after the ending, you know? Yeah, so ooh, I'm looking forward to doing that one. Yes. And we'll also be doing our top five favorite performances of Sandra Bullock. Yeah, that is about as big a star as they come, so that should be fun to do. Also a yeah. great career. Yeah, lots of uh, a varied mix of roles as well, which is always good. Yes, yes, absolutely. That'll be a good one. Right, well, lots to look forward to in our next episode then. So uh, until that time, we're going to leave you for now. But as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. <sighs> Animals. Just, you know, nature's pain in the ass. <laughs> that's a very enlightened view, yeah. Phil. It took me a long, long time to get to that that level of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Buddha first said that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think yeah. he did. Uh, if not, if not Buddha, then it was maybe Colonel Sanders, and that explains yeah. a few things. Get those chickens out of here. Hold on a minute. <laughs> well, it's an it's yeah, blah, blah, blah. okay. Not rusty at all. No, no, I was thinking that. I find a hard speak words today. Yeah, right, exactly. While there are still stupid people out there, the... Ima- the Jesus Christmas. I think one of them's reading this out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I have a, a night joke for you. Okay. You know, I like night my joke. little, my little, no, yeah. a, a night joke, like my, oh. like a night, like a night's tale, like my gotcha. themed, I gotcha, my themed yeah. dad humor joke for the week. Okay, then Mike, hit me you with know, it. I've got, I've, I've replaced Mike's controversial opinion with Mike's cheesy dad joke of the week. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm still, the jury's still out on this one, Mike. But come All on, right. hit me with it. Why were King Arthur's men tired? I don't know, Mike. Too many sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether I'm laughing at the joke or laughing at you laughing. <laughs> I know. I can't help it. I was trying not to, but it's so funny. It's so stupid, but it's funny. So, it, no, it's so funny. I don't know if they're the words I'd use, Mike, but no. It is, it's amusing. <laughs> it's definitely amusing. Something about it is amusing, whether it's the joke or the fact that I get so tickled by it. But, you know. Yeah. We might need to get a few people sitting around the table just to uh, to see that one out. But uh, Wow. Wow. Way, way to kill a funny moment, Phil. <laughs> <laughs>